I once had an introduction. Literally, this was the introduction. I quote, guy said, uh, this is Rabbi Becher, who's from South Africa and is usually pretty good. And he sat down. Well, first of all, that was insulting. I'm not from South Africa. I'm from Australia. And secondly, just what? Usually pretty good. Rabbi Mordechai Becher is a world-renowned teacher, lecturer, and author whose latest book, Gateway to Judaism, is in its 10th printing. Originally from Australia, Rabbi Becher is known for his Torah wisdom, his dry wit, and his encyclopedic knowledge of Jewish history. Rabbi Becher taught at Or Sameach in Yerushalayim, where I was privileged many years ago to sit in on his memorable classes and lectures. He's an alumni rabbi of Neve Yerushalayim, an instructor at YU, and did I mention he also served in the IDF? In this lively conversation, we discuss the power of a great title for your talk. Uh, with, my, with the titles, what I'd like to do is create a feeling in the person who reads the title that this is not going to be same old, same old. How to make the sources you quote come to life for the audience. If I quote a source, I will usually give a very brief background bio to that source. What to do when you're not connecting with the audience. Sometimes look at, I look at someone who's like completely, their face is like blank. If I can get that person to smile or laugh, I feel, oh, done it. And a great joke you can use to get people to graciously turn off their cell phones before you begin speaking. Rabbi Becher is a natural-born teacher who wants everyone who attends his classes to walk away with a positive association with Torah Judaism. I want people to have a enjoyable, inspirational, fun experience with someone who's teaching Torah. I learned so much from this interview, and I'm sure you will too. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Rabbi Mordechai Becher. I, I've never seen such great titles of lectures as the ones that you come up with. Uh, <laughs> they are so fascinating. Uh, you know, they, they just draw you right in. Uh, I'm just thinking of one recently I came across, which was uh, Halloween, Harry Potter, and Pumpkin Spice Lattes. <laughs> and uh, there's the famous uh, Guns and Moses. That, that was, uh, I remember that back in 99. And uh, you just—you seem to have some very, very catchy titles for for your lectures, and I'm curious how how you come up with them. Uh, and uh, yeah, let, let, let's start with that. How, how do you decide on a title? Well, I've got to say, my mentor in titles is Rabbi Avram Rothman, who is the um, rabbi of Aish Community Shul in Thornhill in Canada. Um, we worked together for Samach in Thornhill for four years. And he had he he just he is very, very aside from being a Torah scholar and a wonderful person, he's very well versed in popular culture, uh, rock music, etc. etc. So he 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 inspired me. He came up with a lot of great titles. He had a title for a class about magic and superstition. It was called Things That Go Bump in the Night. Right. He gave me a title for a class on Purim, Three Corners, Two Guys, and a Night in Persia. And I said, what am I supposed to speak about? Is it anything you want? Like, but, but, but. So, so I think uh, what I learned from him is if the title has got some reference to some popular culture that people get, right, like Guns and Moses, it, like, oh, it will already intrigue someone to say this is not just going to be a standard Musser talk, right? So that's what I think I want to, I want to, uh, with my, with the titles, what I'd like to do is 
create a feeling in the person who reads the title that this is not going to be same old, same old. And if the title is something like that, then yeah. I gave a class for some Koilel. Uh, it was an outreach thing. And um, so it was about the Haggadah. So I called it, Daddy, why isn't Charlton Heston in the Haggadah? So now that's already an old reference. This is a while back. Right? Not everyone knows what I'm talking about. It was like Charlton Heston. Right. So they said, can we change that to um instead of you know daddy, can we change it to Tati? Okay. And they said, and can we change Charlton Heston to Moshe? And then can maybe then in the end they took out Daddy. And they wrote Charlton, uh, why isn't Moshe in the Haggadah? So now that's like, that's a standard. You know what I mean? So they 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 took the teeth out of that title. Titles can be very important. I gave a class, I was in Brookline, Massachusetts a few weeks ago. So I gave a shear there um, uh, called, which I called, um, Trusting God and Buy Life Insurance. Right which is an allusion to the famous First World War thing, trusting God and pass the ammunition, right? So, um, but uh, in that, the, the organizers changed it uh, without asking that to trusting God, but by life insurance, which I objected at the beginning of my lecture. I said, actually, that's incorrect. It's not however, or but, or a caveat. I said, there's no contradiction between trusting in God and buying life insurance. That's why I had and as opposed to, you know, so, so to be careful about title, I think it's important. You know, uh, I remember Rav Nachman Bulman, Oliver Sholom, uh, who was an Or Sameach, uh, was asked to give a talk on um, uh, suffering. So he told him, yeah, I'll talk about, I, uh, you know, so I forgot the, uh, the, uh, the title. The subtitle was A Jewish Approach to Suffering. The organizers, wrote the Jewish approach to suffering. Rav Bullman spent the first 10 minutes of the lecture explaining why this is not the, it's A. I'm not claiming I'm the Jewish approach to suffering. It's one of the Jewish approaches. So I, I think two things I want to, A, I would like to portray accuracy in the title. Um, and secondly, maybe more importantly, I want it to be something that will spark a person's interests uh, and to realize it's not, you know, uh, et cetera, right? Uh, especially um, if I'm giving a class yeah. for women where I pretty much, I, I don't speak differently, men or women, it makes no difference, right? Um, but I'm very, I, I try to be a little more careful that the title should not be one of these generic, you know, uh, I spoke, I was in Israel, just got back Sunday, so I spoke in Givat Ze'ev for women, so I, I said to my daughter, who organized the class, I said, so what do you want? Loshon Hora, Shalom Bayis, Chizuk, or maybe technology. <laughs> so she knew I was joking, right, right. my daughter. But, right, right. but that, I, wanna, I stay far away from that type of stuff where in the person's mind, as soon as they see the title, it's same old, same old. They already turn them off before they even come. They may not even come. The, the titles are really so intriguing and so catchy. Uh, do you ever wonder that maybe they overshadow or, uh, for lack of a better term, disappoint uh, the audience when when they 
end up hearing something a little bit, you know, it's got more, obviously more token than Harry Potter and Halloween or, you know, spice lattes and things like that. Um, do, do you ever, does that ever cross your mind? Is that, is that an issue that you think about? No, and I, I, in my experience, I haven't don't have any, uh, scientific evidence for this, but in my anecdotal experience, I don't think that's the, uh, that's the case that doesn't, that hasn't happened. I'll tell you what, I mean, if I could rant for a minute or so, um, one of the things that really annoys you having when you talked about disappointment is uh, when the person introduces a lecturer. So two types of inter either they could give you the facts. Teachers here did this, did this, did this, which is, I think, ideal. Because that way it gives the person, idea. okay, why should I even listen to this guy? Okay, he's got this and this credentials and this experience and so on. When a person gets up, and gives the intro, sought after lecturer, meaningless, stupid, right? Uh, famous, right? Come on, right? They're already here. You don't have to hype, right? The more you hype, the more chance there is of disappointment. If you <laughs> just say, teachers at Yeshiva University, rabbi for Nevaeh alumni, etc., etc., then fine. Okay, okay, right? Well, fine. But if you start to go, funniest rabbi I've ever heard, right? That, what seriously? That that means you, it, it's just like people don't think, right? They're setting up for disappointment and failure because based on the right, it's like you know the the, the opposite end is a terror. I mean, I once had an introduction. Literally, this was the introduction. I quote: "Guy said, uh, I got uh, this is Rabbi Becher, who's from South Africa and is usually pretty good." And he sat down. Well, first of all, that was insulting. I'm not from South Africa. I'm from Australia. And secondly, just what? Usually pretty good. That's the opposite extreme. But again, the only time there is that I, I don't think the topics give a chance for disappointment, right? Unless you don't talk about what the topic said. That's a problem, right? In other words, if the topic said, you know, Jewish approach to combat ethics, and instead, I talk about you know shalom bias. Actually, they're related. Uh, but um, if uh, that that is uh, that's that's disappointment, right? But if I do talk about the topic, I don't think that's a problem. Uh huh. And so, how much time do you put into a topic title? Uh, that's that's I can't I I don't I don't really have an answer to that. Uh, I'll tell you why because certain things, which I've researched and learned and spoken about. Right, but there's a precise topic which I haven't spoken about, but I've I've researched it, I've got stuff on it. So sometimes it takes me very, very little time to put it together. Um, because maybe it's a subject that I've studied and so on. Uh if it's something which I haven't thought about or studied, that will take me a significantly longer time. Um but I am you said you're interviewing veterans. You should have introduced the adjective a grizzled veteran. I'm a grizzled veteran, which means I have actually, uh, you know, discussed and talked about many, many topics over the years. So I guess as time goes on, it takes me less time to prepare because, you know, I've and I, you know, uh, have a filing system on my computer where I have topics and so on and so forth. So uh, I can, yeah. you know, yeah. So it's hard to say. I, I don't really have a. Okay. Let me ask you about the structure because you have uh, a, a well wealth of information uh, in terms of, you know, Torah, knowledge, Jewish history, uh, all, all sorts of things. How do you structure your talk so that it doesn't just become, 
uh, a, a knowledge dump. Uh, you know, how do how do you is there is there an arc to it? Is there a, um, you know how do you how do you intersperse the stories and and anecdotes and 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 humor uh, in between the facts? Is is there a, a specific structure that you try to follow? Well, the, the truth is that is a challenge for me because I do like to dump information. That so it is a challenge. Um, what I usually do, my process, is I put all the sources together. Right? Let's say on an outline in front of me, you know, sources. Just I then go through it and type of start eliminating sources which are not that relevant, not that interesting, don't add anything new, etc. And once I've done that. I get a much more uh, streamlined, efficient group of sources that I would like to present. In other words, I've tried to eliminate. It was my my initial uh, initial desire is massive information dump download into your head, right? And what I do is by going through those sources and eliminate. Uh, that's not no. That's not going to add. That's repetitious, etc. I start cutting things down. As I'm doing that, also. I'm thinking of what would be an interesting parallel secular source to that, which I will research and look into, right? And and you know put that in as well. I think it you know is speaking to people in the language of their culture, right? So I think that's important part of uh, um, of language. Or if Samson Raphael Hirsch would quote Goethe and uh, other great German poets and so on and so forth, that's totally legitimate, and that's something which I always vast majority of the time i will try to uh you know infuse some of our common culture secular culture intellectual history and so on and so forth so i try to do that uh usually it will come to me a uh, some type of joke might come to me and say ah that's a great story or a great joke sometimes it comes to me during the lecture uh, and in which case i'll you know we'll say it so um so that's really the that's really the the process. I do have a tendency that when I quote a, depending on the audience, but if I quote a source, I will usually give a very brief background bio to that source. You know, so which I think is important. I think it's people should know that. If I say, well, Rabbi Yehuda Levi, so I've just quoted Yehuda Levi to an audience that probably doesn't know who he is, which means it's very nice. But it doesn't add anything for them. But if I say Yehuda Halevi was a great Jewish politician, physician, poet, Torah scholar, rabbi who lived in Spain, who was a rock star in Spain, who moved to Israel at the end of his life, and he was wrote 800 poems about the land of Israel, etc. That type of gives, gives him a little personality and it makes him more human and uh and again it's like the intro uh where it gives you reason oh so he lived in spain at this and this time that maybe i should listen in other words i want to try to give a little bit of it so that that at the risk of information overload um i have to balance that with the fact that i want to give people context to these statements and these people and give them a sense of connection to them i think that's important as well yeah are there any sources that you consider to be off limits that you won't uh won't quote or, or won't or won't go into uh maybe who, who's behind the source let's say for example uh you know like you're quoting a, a rock band or something like that and you know if you quote them then 
maybe there's a thought that, okay, well now I'm, I'm introducing to them, they're, they're going to be curious about something and they'll go back and research that. And, you know, I, I don't want to use that source so that to take them down that road or. Uh, I'm not, no, I, 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 unless, you know, sometimes if I'm speaking, there are places I speak like a from Masifta, Yeshiva High School, right? Um, where I, I, I know that if I ever want to be back there again, I probably should not be quoting Taylor Swift. You know what I mean? So, uh, so I do sometimes practice self-censorship in terms of sources. Uh, on the whole, regular audiences, not high school, you know, from high school kids, etc. I, 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 you know what I mean? It's not like my mentioning it is going to make it more. You know, I think there's so much information out there and so much negativity, etc. I don't, I don't think that it's a big deal. You know, they'll, you know, they start to say, Kansas, who's is that a city? No, it's a rock band. It's a great, great, right? So, okay, they'll listen to Kansas. Who cares? Like, what, they're going to become a Christian because some of the Kansas members, I don't think that's a realistic uh, fear. Um, so I don't, I don't worry about it. I did speak, of, I've spoken a few times in Williamsburg. So I spoke at this place in Williamsburg for a Satma audience about Torah Shabal Peh. So I said to them when they were calling me to speak, I said, listen, um, I do quote from a wide variety of sources, both Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, you know, I mean, I, I might bring in something from the Christian scriptures. I'll bring in something from a secular voter. They said, so the guy says, that's all fine, just not Ruf Cook. <laughs> <laughs> so they're okay with the New Testament, not Ruf Cook. Like that's little perverse but okay uh so but usually i don't i don't worry about that i i bring in a source i bring in a source i have have i been called out on that yes some people have said to me i don't know how you can quote that i wrote an article I had a newspaper editor uh write to me that uh it's not we don't uh, secular sources have no place in the Torah newspaper i said i said i don't know i said i'm a talmud of Moshe shapiro I've heard him quote Nietzsche in class. I've heard him quote and recommend reading um, If by Rudyard Kipling. Um, he has quoted entire paragraphs from Immanuel Kant. The Rambam uh, cites Aristotle and others. His son, Rabavrom, quotes from Sufi uh, Muslim mystics. Uh, Choiva Salvovas quotes from uh, Muslim scholars. Right. I, I, what 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 exactly is your right? Would you not have them write in your newspaper? Um, so I I think they're wrong. I mean I think it's uh, you know you are allowed to quote Chokma Bagoyim Tamin. Wisdom is found amongst the nations, and there is a lot of wisdom there. And also again, if I am trying to express an idea of the Torah, if I can express it through something which is really familiar to people. Then I think that's uh, that that's helpful. That is very helpful. And you know, maybe next time they think or hear of that phrase or that song, etc., that may actually prompt them to think of a Torah idea, uh, a Jewish idea, rather than you know what the author intended. <laughs> so, um, let me ask you about some of your background. You're from Australia, and yeah. uh, and and at what point did you move to to Israel? Well, I um, grew up in Australia, and uh, when I finished high school, um, I went to Yeshiva in Israel. 
Um, so I moved to Israel to, I mean, I wasn't planning on staying there. I was planning on staying for a year and going back to engineering school in Australia. Um, I ended up staying for a, a second year, deferred my place in college. Um, then I, after my third year, they said, you know, we can't hold your place. So I changed from engineering to general science faculty, held the place for another two years. After four years, I I said, listen, don't think I'm coming back. So um, I stayed in Israel, uh, was at uh, Yeshivas Itri, um, and uh, later on, right, that's where I met some of my Rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Fisher, Oliver Sholom, and Rabbi Asher Rubenstein, and amazing Rabbi and close friends I'm still in contact with today. Many, many good friends from Itri, uh, uh, Rabbi Yeshua Karsh, who is a rabbi in Northbrook, Illinois, uh, Torah Learning Center. Um, Dr. Michael Wolshansky, head of gastro pediatric gastroenterology at Hadassah, who I just saw in Israel. So, I mean, still in contact with these people since 1978, 79, 80. And then um, there was a split from Itri and a new yeshiva called Mishkan Hatoira started that used to be called Splitry. And that's where Ramosha Shapiro became Rosh Yeshiva. And I was there for many years, then, you know, got married, was in Kolel there for a while, then taught, started, taught at Or Sameach. Uh, in Israel and Neve Yerushalayim in Israel, then moved. I was in Canada for four years working for Orsamach there, Thornhill, Ontario, then back to Israel. Then in 2000, um, came to the States where I worked for Gateways for, for quite a while. Um, and uh, then past 12 years or so, I've been teaching at uh, full time at Yeshiva University. And my long association with Neveh Yerushalayim, so I am the alumni rabbi for Neveh Yerushalayim mm -hmm. as well. And I do yeah. a lot of tours and gigs. and you know. Yeah. At what point you were in the IDF? I was in the IDF in the 90s, yeah. Yeah. I was in what's called Shlav Beit, um, which is people who made Aliyah older. So I'd been in Yeshiva. Interesting, actually, I was in, I was in Koilel, married, and uh, so I had the Yeshiva deferment until that time. And then I uh, was going to get a job teaching at Orsamach. So legally, you're supposed to join, you're supposed to, if you're teaching, you no longer have the yeshiva deferment, although most people take it. So I, I did not feel that was right. So I asked Ramosha Shapiro what I should do. He said, ask for Shlomo Zalman Orbach, which I did. And he said, I should go to the army. So at that point, I, yeah, I enlisted and did a uh, shorter service than the than 18 year olds but i i served uh, in the rabbinate of the army i have two sons who are serving now so one's a paratrooper and the other one is in armored infantry mm -hmm. okay um i remember a story you told once where you said you were late to shear uh to with Ramosha shapiro and uh and you ran in your in your uniform <laughs> and remember yeah. the story yeah, yeah. I, I was actually very proud of myself that I got off base in order to go to the shear. I came in with a gun and uniform, and he looks up as I walk in. He says, oh, our hero. <laughs> Deflated my ego significantly with the, the sarcastic. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, that, that was a very, very memorable story. How do you how do you find stories? I mean, you obviously have some personal stories, but but where do you go looking for stories? Uh, I don't. Do you, have, do you have a process? Do you curate? I, I don't. I, I, I'm, I'm, a sh I'm embarrassed, but uh, 
I should. I know some people keep them on index cards and this and that and have a file, but I usually, I, I've thank God, a good memory. So if I hear a good story and it's and um, I feel it's relevant to a class, I'll just put in a couple of key words in my notes and I remember it. I don't have to like have the whole story. I just like, you know, this, this, right? And uh, um, stories are an interesting problem. Um, on the you know, the purpose of a story is to connect the audience to your words and to you, right? It's like a like a muscle, like Michelet, right? So um, I try to avoid stories that will disconnect people, right? So for example, stories from the shtetl. I don't feel connected to the shtetl, right? Dirt floors, murdering Cossacks anti-semitic government it's like you know it's not you know it's not something i i feel you know so i don't feel like it's or fanciful stories about the prince who was thrown out of his palace by the king which are great i understand them a shot but it doesn't speak to people most people not when they think of a prince they think of harry you know what i mean it's not like you know, similar ideas so so i do try to avoid those type of stories um i do if I do hear a story, I very will. I w once I hear the story, I will research it to see if it's accurate to the extent that I can. Some stories is not possible to know if it's accurate. Sometimes you can know it's inaccurate. That drives me crazy, right? When I hear people telling a story about this town, it was the year this and this, you know, and I happen to know that that town didn't exist in that year, uh, or you know, just like some random fact. I said, why, right? And stories which are so blatantly and obviously untrue just for the interactions of the people and then he said that there is no way any normal human being would do that i heard some rabbi telling a story who i mean many many stories uh, and i i would say probably conservative estimate 80 percent were sheker gomor and the others were just exaggerated but like, i don't know seriously you get sorry he gets on a play I, actually i don't want to tell the story because people might know who the rabbi is so but it, it does annoy me stories which are which are clearly inaccurate historically uh and stories which depict and this unfortunately is something you hear from rabbis depict people who are not us in a very negative light and depict us whoever us is right as being wow or it's I don't know if there's a, you know, value and you know, you hear these, you hear people say a story about about the the non-Jew who helped them in the middle of the night in a terrible neighborhood. He must have been Eliyahu Anovi. No, maybe he was a nice person, right? <laughs> it's like the idea that if you know he must be Eliyahu Anovi, otherwise what? You know, no, maybe he's a good, decent human being, right? Well, it doesn't. So I don't know. Those there are so many things that disturb me. This could go on for hours if I did if I continued. So we're not going to. I'm going to stop here. But but yeah. with stories, I do try to see if they're accurate, right? Um, and uh, certainly uh, not blatantly contradicting well-known historical facts, etc. That's that's I think important and relevant. Yeah, the story should be relevant. Yeah, I remember a story you told when you came. You visited Columbus, and you told a story about. Uh, I think the topic of was was humor, the the benefit of humor, and you talked about someone who was uh, so depressed that he was going to jump off a boat. Do you remember that story? Um, and and someone someone cheered him up 
by saying, uh, he said, when, when, when you, when you get down there, say hi to the Liviason for me. Oh, no, 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 um, that's, that, not, that was that's the, not exactly the, that, now this is, the story was the Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, 19th century in the, Dun, uh, in Danzig, Gdansk, one of his students slipped in the mud and fell into a river and he's being carried along by the current and had given up hope. None of them could swim. Right. Um, so um, as they're running along the river near him, who's just being carried away, Reb Simchabunim yells at the guy in the river. He says, give him grist to the Leviathan, give regards to the Leviathan. And then the guy, something changed, and the guy started thrashing around and actually got close enough to show they could pull him out. So that's actually mentioned in, in a couple of Hasidish Ramataim Sofim and also in Siach Sarfei Kodesh. And and uh, there's the third source, um, that Kol, uh, I forgot the third source, um, which Rosimcha Bunim understood that Kibbasimcha Seitzayu, Hosek says, you'll go forth with joy. He says, I understood it literally. When you have Simcha, you can get out of anything. I saw Yush, I saw despair in this guy's mind. I saw on his face that he'd given up hope. I figured if I can inject a little bit of happiness, one neuron will say to the other, dude, that was funny. That will save him. He can save himself, which is actually what happened. Yes, yeah, so that's the that's the story. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was an amazing story, and, and it was very memorable. Uh, when you when you speak, uh, every speech probably has its own purpose and goal. But uh, do you have any overriding goals for when when you speak? Hmm. Are you trying to transform, uplift, educate? Uh, a combination of the three. Uh, yes. Well, a few a few things. Yeah, I I, I ultimately I see um, my goal is to teach Torah in a way that will be relevant and inspiring and entertaining. But my primary goal teach Torah. Um, if I give a class or a talk or a short etc., first a I feel it's a requirement that it must have enough content that a person will have to say Birch HaSatoira before they listen. <laughs> I don't mean from a technical halachic perspective, but to hear someone give a speech, even if it's five minutes, if he's a representative of Judaism, Torah, a rabbi, and that speech, you wouldn't, if you did not say Birch HaSatoira, you'd be cool. I find that a travesty. Right? I, 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 so my prime goal, teach Torah. Right? That's number one uh, to, uh, yeah. Um, I would say um, I want people to have a enjoyable, inspirational, fun experience with someone who's teaching Torah. So even if they don't remember the content and um, they'll, they'll, they'll have a, a positive experience with with someone who looks like me, like a yarmulke, beard, etc., which is a good thing. <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's that's something else. So my primary, my prime goal is teaching Torah. Sorry, prime directive. Oh yeah, as in Star Trek. Yeah, prime directive is is teaching Torah, right? Um, and uh, there are many other components in it. You know what I mean? If right, it depends who I'm speaking to, also as to what the goal is. You know, um, so. Um, yeah, that that's very how, much dependent. Yeah, 
How often are you given a topic versus uh, uh, given the license to select the topic yourself when, when you speak, when you go on lectures? Um, most of the time, well, it's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a hybrid. In other words, I will I have a list of let's say three hundred or so, three hundred fifty or so topics, which I will send to the locations. They can choose any you want, All right? So it's possible that that what they want is not on the list, you right? Um, it's unlikely, but it's possible, right? In which case, then I will you know say you know if I have time, okay, I'll prepare a new class on that subject. But usually it's something that's on the list and usually, but I usually let them choose. But first of all, I, I assume that the local, the locals know the audience better than I do. Right. So they may know, but not always true. Not always true. I recently spoke at a school for the 12th grade and then for the 11th. So they chose a great topic for the 12th graders, which went extremely well. The topic they chose was why are there so many mitzvot, right? Which is a good topic. It spoke about the details of halacha and so on. Very entertaining, very informative, etc. Explains halacha, gemara, etc. In one shot. The second topic, which they said for the eleventh grade, was do I have to take medrash literally? Now the answer is no. But I can I elaborated on that. But it, it is a topic, but it's usually a topic which is maybe for a little more advanced group. It's not something that 11th graders are thinking of. Huh, it's a strange midrash. Do I have to take that literally or not? So, so I, I, should, I should have, sometimes I feel that I should, and I do try to do that, you know, feedback. We have a conversation. You know, this is a, this is a topic like, for example, I spoke, again, this was another place I spoke at, uh, Malafa Malka for women. They wanted me to speak about some classic woman's topic. And I said, no. Nah. I said, I, I, when I speak to women, I never, I looks like never, vast majority of the time, I will refrain and avoid classic topics that are always given to women because they're always given to women. Why? What, they're not interested in other stuff? They're interested in lots of other stuff. <laughs> so uh, I insisted on a different topic. I said, choose a different one. So he chose from my list. And it was not, it was not Loshan Horror, Chizuk, Sneer, Shalom, Bayasok technology. You know, it was none of those, none of the above. You speak to so many different types of people, uh, so many different backgrounds, ages, genders. Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you connect when, when you first meet a, a new crowd? Um, do, you, do you have? Is there anything that you specifically do to, to try to connect with them uh, if you're meeting people for the first time when you're speaking to a new audience? Yeah, I, I think the I think um, opening with some type of um, joke, story, right, remark of a local character, you know, etc. I think is very helpful. That already creates a connection. Milsa dibdichuso. To start with a, you know, it puts it puts people at ease. It creates a connection. So, you know, depending on who the audience is and what I will say, maybe if it's a high school, I might say, "Well, thank you, everyone, for coming." Oh, I forgot, you have to come. Okay, but uh, but you know, so they'll uh, right, yeah, they have to be here. So, etc. So, a little bit of a um, connection. I, I understand that you don't want to be here and you were forced to come by it because otherwise it'll, you know, whatever. So that, that, that type of thing, that's just an example random, but uh, I do try to, um, 
to, to establish some type of connection. Um, you know, sometimes a shout out to someone I know in the audience, if that if that's uh, applicable. Um, but I think it's important to establish that somehow. You know, just puts people a little more at ease. Um, um, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you just cannot connect with the audience in front of you? Um, or just yeah, no, nothing. I, I yeah, I, I've had I've had that. Usually, it's not with everyone. Usually, I connect with one. Sometimes, some people. But yeah, there are times that I've had. That I just feel I'm not connecting with the majority of the people there. Um, yeah. And so what do you do under those circumstances? I type of focus my energy on the people I, that I can look, see in the audience who are connected. And, um, and that's, so that creates in me something positive, positive energy. And may, and that does rub off sometimes, right. On, on those who are, right. Um, who I feel are not connecting to. I sometimes look at, I look at someone who's like completely their face is like, Blank. If I can get that person to smile or laugh, I feel, oh, done it. <laughs> so, yeah, I will, uh, you know, I may say a joke and, and looking at them at the time. And, you know, so that, that does that does help me. I don't know if it helps them, but it helps me. <laughs> did you did you uh, study uh, speaking? Did you have a natural knack for it? Um, you know, some of your influences, role models for speaking? Well, Many of my teachers in school felt that I spoke way too much, so I, I guess that might be. Uh, um, I used to, but um, I had a lot of great role models who were excellent orators and speakers, um, who I type of learnt from and uh, and and modelled myself on in many ways. Uh, amongst them, um, Reb Shlomo Fisher, Oliver Sholem, uh, who was. Agon Atsum, who was at Itri Yeshiva, um, Ravasha Rubenstein, who was a excellent speaker, um, and uh, later then Ramosha Shapiro, who aside from being a Gaon and a huge Tamachachem, was also an excellent, excellent speaker. Um, a lot of just excellent in so many ways. Um, his language was clear. Um, he, he's excellent speaker. Um, another two people that I used to uh, listen to when I first started, um, I used to listen to Rev, uh, Natan Lopez Cardoza, excellent speaker, and um, Rav David Gottlieb of Or Sameach. So these are people who I listened to and uh, were very helpful um, in, in, in um, cultivating uh, a speaking style, and I, I, I can't say I've imitated any of them, but but I've incorporated stuff from them. One one aspect of speaking which I I don't know where I got it from, but is is an aversion to sermonizing and an affinity for speaking normally, like a normal human being, right? Um, uh, which I type of like, there were, there were some people who inspired me by turning me off what they were doing, right? <laughs> no, it was negative inspiration. Oh, oh man, that's, that's like, I can't listen to this, right? Um, someone who, someone who shouts at me, um, someone who sings songs, right? Things to me, um, uh, 
someone who speaks in this in a in a very formal stunted style right uh in in the the classic sermon um style which to me i think just turns me off i don't know if it turns other people off or maybe just turns them to sleep but um that is something which again there were people who inspired me not to do that uh none of the above they're all positive inspirations but i would listen to certain people and say there's no way if i ever speak like that shoot me right um so i think normal speaking natural speaking i think i might might call it conversational tone i think is uh, at least something which i uh, i don't strive for i just stri- i don't i just how i that's how i talk yeah let me ask you about uh because you've been speaking for so long uh not today i mean it, <laughs> for for uh you know the uh the history of, of your speaking um how has attention spans uh, affected the way you speak the the today's attention spans um it's difficult to know I, you know um i don't have any empirical data on attention spans and i was told um that there is that that there is not a lot of evidence that attention spans have gotten shorter i don't i don't know again my uh my, i got a son who's a statistician and my wife is a, a teacher in educational psychology and stuff like that. so they both th- seem to think that there's no there's not statistical evidence that attention spans have got so so all this is anecdotal uh, but i would say in terms of my um college students at least i think i'm continuously in competition with their devices so they may have a great attention they might be able to look at their social media for hours that that means a great attention span but the problem is they're supposed to listen to me for the next 45 minutes right so that's a huge issue is the competition with people's devices um i assume it's uh there's a higher degree of that competition with college students than with let's say uh, more mature audiences but it's still still a matter of competition i i you know you often uh in an audience again not on shabbos but um all those happen on shabbos but uh where people are you know they're 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 not with you because they're on the so that's not because of the attention span per se that's because of distraction and i think we are very distracted that's that appears to me to be a major issue of distraction. But I think if the subject matter is interesting to people and you are not only informative but also somewhat inspiring and possibly also I don't aim for inspiration but you know but um somewhat entertaining then I think people have the ability to listen for much longer than you'd you'd, you'd imagine, you know. Mhm. And and do you do you ask people to turn off their phones before you begin or do you is is how do you deal with the competition i i sometimes do that yeah usually the person introducing will do that that's very common nowadays the person introducing will ask people um i i sometimes uh steal a line from my good friend rabbi jonathan rietti um who's someone you should probably interview uh who will tell people please put your phones on silence um in consideration of those who are sleeping so uh, yeah that's that gets a chuckle and uh it's unfortunately true but anyway uh <laughs> so yeah i sometimes ask that yeah but usually usually i let the you know person introducing does that um i i don't do that 
with certain audiences because it just remind it it puts me in the mode of being the teacher disciplinarian etc so if i'm teaching at a high school or something like that i'm not going to say anything like that right and let the teachers take care of that type of stuff that's not my job and i don't want to be associated with that job um i was recently uh at a beginner's service in actually in Aish Thornhill with Rabbi Rothman. I was there for Shabbos Shufa and Yom Kippur, this last Shabbos Shufa and Yom Kippur. The beginner service were non from like we had like, I don't know, 50, 60, non -frum. there were people in there with phones, Yom Kippur. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything. <laughs> so. Yeah. Have you ever received any, any negative feedback? Uh, besides, let's say, you know, the sources that we talked about earlier. Have, have you ever received any, uh, you know, feedback people saying that that's not what we were expecting or you know or um you know what, what would be some of the, the situations where you know you, you didn't meet expectations you know and and uh ha, ha, where did you see maybe that there was a disconnect from from the beginning hmm. interesting question i don't uh not to say that there hasn't been but i don't remember i i negative feedback that i've gotten has not been of that type. The negative feedback that I've gotten has not been that I didn't address the topic, but usually, uh, not usually, but when it's happened, has been things like they object to something I said. Right? I gave a talk about Maharal, uh, in which during the course of it, I mentioned that I did not believe that he made a golem. Someone said that's Apicorosus. I said, which one of the Yugimal Ikrim? Uh, did I transgress? Did I, you know, it's a, no, they can, you know, so I've got, I've gotten apicorosis, you know, claims. Um, I've gotten from some crowds that I'm a, a, a Zionist and, um, and hence a denier of the, all the Gedolim. I say, look, I am a Zionist. Uh, I am, I ag agreed that the Satma Rebbe would not agree with me, right? But it's not like I have no Gedolim on my side. <laughs> like, all, everyone agreed with the Satma Rebbe? No, right? So I've, I've had that a few times. Um, people objected to things that I've said. Uh, I, maybe once or twice, I think I've had people say that uh, I didn't address the issue that was on the topic. But I think they just, I think that was because they may have misunderstood the topic. I don't think it was. You know, hard to hard to prove, but uh, I don't think I, I don't think they've had that. But the the objections I've had is to usually to the content, not to oh you didn't address the issue that you set out to address. I have had some constructive criticism. You know, it was excellent. I was in mm -hmm. I was in Dallas a little while ago. Yeah, and someone made actually a great point that uh, that I'd left out one of the primary ideas. In my Dvar Torah, and he was right. I, I, I type it. You know, it does happen. If I've been, you know, I'm, I, I'm tired or whatever it is, I might have to I leave out a point. That's, that's legitimate, and uh, so I'm happy he mentioned that. Now, for the next, every time I give that same idea Dvar Torah, I'm going to include specifically what he said because that is, you know, a, a major point. So I'm very happy when there's that type of criticism uh, because uh, you know I, I can correct that. I can correct that, and I want that type of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, so the flip side of that is some of the times that you, you've, you've really uh, hit it out of the park, you know, some things, you know, maybe some talks in, in the history of your talking that you really feel that you made a, a Rosham, a real 
deep impression, uh, maybe inspired some change, things like that. C can you think back to some of those examples? <laughs> uh, hard to, it's very hard because I don't even know what the impact is, right? The impact may not be, I mean, I've had, you know, um, classes where people have, uh, which is a little unusual, people have burst into applause afterwards. I guess, you know, those have been cases where, you know, I spoke in, in Queens at the outbreak of the war and uh, got, uh, but on the other hand, that may not be because of what I said. People were very emotional and, uh, and, and uh, rah, rah, misrol, chai. It's like, yeah, it's going to get a, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to know. Um, very hard to know. But I have had very positive feedbacks and many, to, thank God. Otherwise, I don't think I'd be in this um, if I didn't feel that I had positive impact and positive feedback, et cetera. But I do get people who say, yeah, that speech was like, yeah. Uh, but I don't usually find that out until much later. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily find that out at the time. And I don't even remember what speech it was. And, you know, um, I've had people say they were so inspired by something I said, and I, I'm thinking to myself, I actually didn't say that. And I say, like, you sure that was me? They said, absolutely, Australian Rabbi Becher. I said, all right. <laughs> they made up something that they think I said, which inspired them and said, I, I don't know. So it's 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 very, very hard to uh, to know that type of stuff. Uh, you know, you sometimes you can see on people's faces, right, that this had, that something clicked and, ah, oh, you know, one of the great, one of the most interesting compliments I had afterwards. A guy came up to me after a lecture, completely secular Jew. He says, "You know, Rabbi, some of the things you said actually made sense." Like he said, with a sense of total surprise and shock, that some of the things I said actually made sense. Well, that's that's wonderful. He says, "Yes, yes, it was very, yeah, thank you." And that, that's, who knows? It's it's very hard to know that type. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so the last question I want to ask you is if uh, someone's starting out on their speaking career, you know, to, to teach Torah, convey Torah, um, what maybe two pieces of advice would you give them uh, when, they, when they set out to, to start their speaking career? Whether it's lectures uh, like, like you do or whether it's uh, um, drushas, you know, Shabbos in, Shabbos out. Um, what what mindset or attitude or or approach or, or methods would you would you give if you had two pieces of advice? Well, Chazal say Ein Adam Loy Meb Torah El Mokam Shuliboy Chafetz. It's actually two similar statements in Chazal Gemara Nevodah A person only learns Torah in the subject matter that they enjoy, and from the person whom they desire. So I think. Um, from both of those, one I would derive that it's got to be when you teach, it's got, it should be something that you enjoy, you are passionate about, a source that you love. And so, uh, in other words, because then it's going to be something which your learning of the source is that much better. And hence, your delivery will be also that much better. Once heard from Rabbi Yoshiv who said that uh, he said to someone, good friend of mine, Jeff Baer, asked him, what's the, what's the secret to Hatzlocha, success in learning? And he said, learn everything as though you have to teach it. When you learn something as though you have to teach it, so whenever you learn, if you're in a position like that, you should be learning it with mine. How would I teach this? Right? And obviously the subject matter that you learn is probably going to be motivated by something that you enjoy. 
you enjoy Maharal or of Hirsch or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, two very different approaches. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I wouldn't minimize, I wouldn't, I wouldn't restrict myself to just only to try to you know, get a variety, but that would be one thing. And and secondly, um, that the, they should also, since a person also can only learn from someone they desire to learn from, you should try to make your learning something palatable yourself, your learning, your teaching, your speaking that people will enjoy. Right? I feel it should be a enjoyable experience. <laughs> I remember speaking at some late large event on on a Shivasar Batamuz. It was either that or Tishavav. I think it was Shivasar Batamuz. And I asked Reb Moshe Shapiro beforehand. I said, I said, I don't know if I can speak without telling a joke or something. I said, Shivasar Batamuz. He said, Beseder. And he says, That's fine. He says, Zechelek Mahamalocha. That's part of the work. It's part of the part of the trade, right? So even then, you know, so I do try. To have in mind, will person enjoy this? Is this going to be an enjoyable experience for them? So th those those are two pieces of advice that I think I could probably say with uh, confidence. But both of them, I think, are from Chazal, so I'm okay. So good to speak to you again. The best with your family, and uh, Hashem should watch over your children and be well. Thank you. You've been listening to the Magid Method, and I'm Daniel Steinberg. There's a secret that great public speakers know. Did you know there's a method for cutting straight through to an audience's heart, grabbing their attention and holding it, and making a memorable impact with your presentation? The best speakers in the world utilize it, and now you can too, every time you get up to speak. Download your free Magid Method of Public Speaking template at magidmethod.com, M-A-G-G-I-D-M-E-T-H-O-D.com. The Magid Method will teach you how to find your authentic voice, craft meaningful presentations, manage people's attention, and build unbreakable bonds with your audience. Go to magidmethod.com and download your free copy now.